0: Grab your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 8. Most of you probably know that I spent the last nine years before this position doing student ministry. and One of the things I loved about student ministry was the willingness of teenagers to ask the tough questions. Like Young people are not afraid to ask those questions that I think we as adults sometimes are afraid to say out loud. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had over the years with students about things like evolution and gender and all sorts of fun topics where I'm having to do a lot of study to figure out. But perhaps the conversation I've had the most with young people over the years concerns one specific topic and that is God's judgment these conversations often come from questions like how can a loving God send people to hell why did God in the Old Testament like have entire groups of people just wiped out and if God is loving and merciful and forgiving then why doesn't he just save everyone these are questions that young people wrestle with. These are questions that I've wrestled with. Maybe you've wrestled with. It's interesting over the the past few years we've there's been this this string of high-profile Christians who have publicly walked away from the faith. And if you read their stories, it's interesting many of them raise similar questions. I remember reading about the the lead singer of a Christian band that I grew up listening to. And I saw play at all the big youth conferences. And he was sharing online about how he's to the point today where he doesn't even believe in God anymore. He cited concerns like the truthfulness of the Bible and the hypocrisy in the church. And a big one for him was God's judgment. I mean, let's be honest here. Of all the things we know and believe about God, the idea of his wrath and judgment might be the most difficult. There's a reason we don't put certain verses on our coffee cups or post them on social media. We, we like to focus on God's love and grace for us and we like Jeremiah twenty nine eleven and Psalm twenty three and John three sixteen and for good reason, man. Those are everybody's favorite verses because they're about God's love, which is awesome, right? It's that's what the gospel is about. But that's not all the Bible says about God. The, the Bible also has a lot to say about God's judgment and wrath towards sin. We can't ignore it or hide it. And in, in fact, I would argue that we can't fully understand the gospel, until we fully understand God's judgment. Without God's judgment of sin, then things like Jesus dying on the cross just don't make much sense. So my personal philosophy that I've kind of adopted is rather than hiding the, the rough edges of the Bible or ignoring the difficult parts, let's just dive right in. I mean, let's just look at it head on, okay? Let's don't mess around with it. Let's think about it. Let's wrestle with it. Let's ask the hard questions. Because I think when we do, and this has been true in my life, not only do we learn, but we grow to love Jesus and God even more. So I want to encourage you, keep that childlike curiosity. Don't be afraid to ask hard questions. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we think through the character of God's judgment. And that's, that's our sermon title today. You may have walked in, saw that, and thought, oh boy, what time's lunch Right? I mean, that just doesn't sound fun at all. But I think this is so important because I think one of the reasons people today struggle with God's judgment is because they really don't understand God's judgment. <laughs> they don't understand the character or, or nature of His judgment, they don't understand the why behind it. But today in Revelation, we're going to look at just that. We're going to examine the character of God's judgment. If any book of the Bible is filled with judgment, we know it's Revelation, right? We've already seen some of that so far in this letter. We're going to see a lot more of it because as we get closer to the return of Christ, this battle between God and the evil forces of the world that's going to grow and intensify and all this chaos and evil and brokenness is going to become more and more pronounced. And The pinnacle of this time of chaos where things are going to be at their worst is a period of time that we call the tribulation. This is commonly believed to be a period of seven years when God's judgment will be poured out on the world and, will, and when Satan will war against the people of God. And according to the way I interpret Revelation's timeline, I believe chapter 8 is going to bring us right to the beginning of that tribulation. So I want to invite you to look with me now at Revelation chapter 8. And I want to show you three things we see about the character of God's judgment from his judgment in the last year. So look at Revelation 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Okay, so let's, let's pause right there. What is the seventh seal? How does it relate to the seven trumpets? And what in the world is up with all these sevens? <laughs> well, those questions are, as I hope you're beginning to see, questions that we sometimes answer this way. Scholars are divided on that, right? That, that's, the, that's the cop-out answer. But let's kind of look at this, all right? I believe the seventh seal is simply what it says. I, I think it's in half an hour a silence, you want to practice that? No, some of you are making, yeah, that'd be nice. No, um, are you familiar with, with the saying, the silence is deafening? I believe that's what's happening here. This silence is meant to convey a foreboding of what's to come. I mean, after all the singing and worship and worshiping and trumpets, it's, it's silence. It's this dramatic pause that says, hey, things are about to get bad. Uh, We were discussing this seventh seal with some of our staff members, and Dr. Tracy McElhaddon, she's Jen's counterpart at the Antioch campus, she explained this in a really helpful way. She said, guys, if you're having an argument with your wife, and she goes suddenly silent, is that ever a good thing? (laughs) No, and do you know why? Because the silence means that she has pronounced judgment on you. (laughs) I thought, man, that's really good. Um, That that is the idea here with the breaking of the seventh seal. God's judgment is about to be poured out. After the silence, seven trumpets are handed out to seven angels, which we're about to see those trumpets. But right before that, something really interesting happens. Another angel approaches the altar of God with incense and with the prayers of Christians. And the smoke from the prayers rises up to God and then he takes some fire and he throws it on the earth. And what is happening here is a direct connection To the prayer that we saw in Revelation 6 from the fifth seal. If you remember, I know you (laughs) didn't have all the seals memorized. But remember, the fifth seal is the martyrs in heaven. They were under the altar and they're praying to God. They're saying, God, how long? How long are you going to let this go on? How long until you vindicate us in your name? Right here, God begins to answer this prayer with his judgment. And this tells us the first thing we need to see this morning, if you're writing this down, if you're taking mental notes, whatever it is, the first thing we see this morning about the character of God's judgment is this. God's judgment is just. It's just. In order to understand why God judges, we need to understand two of his attributes, his justice and his holiness, Isaiah 3018 says that God is a God of justice. And that, that word just it means right and fair. It means morally right. God is a, a God who desires fairness and justice in the world. That means when he judges, he does so fairly. His judgment is not a toddler temper tantrum. He's not Zeus sitting in heaven waiting to strike people with lightning just because he can. He's not vindictive or cruel, lashing out at people like we do when we get mad or someone cuts us off in traffic. I know you you never do that. But God is actually pictured in the Bible as being patient. Look at this verse. I think it'll be on the screen. 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10. It says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is Patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter tells us, he says, Hey, God is patient. He's giving people time to repent, He's giving people a chance but the day of the Lord will come. Eventually, this season of God's patience will will come to an end and he will act and when he judges, he will do so fairly, which means everyone that God punishes in judgment will deserve it. He's not just doling out judgment to whoever looks at him the wrong way. No, his, his judgment is calculated and warranted. God will not judge God will never judge an innocent person, but he will only judge those who deserve it. But hang on a second. Do the people really deserve some of the things we we see in the Bible? Did, Did Sodom and Gomorrah really deserve to have fire rain down on their city? Do people really deserve to spend an eternity in hell? Well, this is where we have to understand God's holiness. The reason that God's judgment sounds so offensive to us, the reason we might want to skip over these verses or ignore them, the reason it might bother us is because we don't understand God's holiness. God's holiness means that he is totally separate and unique from all things. Think about it. If sinning against another human being is wrong and deserves punishment, if robbing or raping or murdering someone is an offense that must be dealt with, then how much greater must the offense be to sin against the holy God? I mean, to sin against an infinitely holy God requires an infinitely just payment. Another aspect of God's holiness we understand, it means that he's so morally pure that he cannot tolerate sin and evil. He cannot not do something about it. He has to act. God has to act in ways that are consistent with his holiness. That means he has to deal with evil. And ultimately, this is a good thing. This is something we want God to be whether we realize it or not. I mean, think about this with me. Imagine a judge, a real life judge, he sees a case come before him of, of someone who is clearly guilty of first-degree murder. And yet that judge decides to just let him walk. Nah, I'm not gonna punish that. He won't do it again. He just lets him go. Would we consider that judge a good judge? Would the family of that victim be pleased with that outcome no a judge's job is to administer justice on behalf of the offended we, we want that or imagine this imagine someone who saw a, a child being abused and yet they just walked away and did nothing about it Would we consider that a morally good action no i mean to see injustice and be able to do something about it and to not do anything that's wrong I mean, this is why we feel righteous anger rise up when we, we watch the news and we hear of someone innocent who's been mistreated or harmed. We, we kind of feel that, that stirring in us, like, mm. right? That's because we're made in God's image. We're like God in that way. Uh, notice Psalm 711. It's funny, 711. Psalm 711. It says, God is a righteous judge. And a God who feels indignation every day. Man, like we watch the news and we see one story of injustice and we feel that indignation. But man, imagine God who sees and knows all injustice all the time. He feels indignation every day. He feels burdened for his people. He wants to help them, to vindicate them, to vindicate his name. His judgment is him acting. On behalf of his people. So God judges because he is just and holy. It's who he is. And this is a good thing. Like the prayers of the saints, we want God to deal with the evil in the world. We want God to make things right again. And he's doing that. He's dealing with evil. Except here's the part we don't like. We are a part of that evil. It isn't just out there, it's in here too. We're sinners. We have and still do commit evil acts. We violate and offend God's holiness. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? What about God's judgment towards you? We're going to come back to that. At the end. But that's the first thing I want us to see this morning about the character of God's judgment. God's judgment is just. Here's the second thing we see God's judgment is material. It's material. And what I mean by that is that during the tribulation, God's judgment is going to take place in and involve the material world. Let's keep reading in Revelation chapter 8. Look at verses 6 through 13. Now, the seven angels who have the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Whoa, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Just like the seven seals, the seven trumpets are divided out into the first four and then you got the last three. But the trumpets are they're more intense and devastating than the seals were. And we're gonna see the same thing when we get to the seven bowls. It's getting worse, which tells us we're getting closer to the return of Christ. These first four trumpets, they involve the the natural material world. Look at it. The first one it, it affects the land, grass, and trees. The second one affects the sea. The third one affects the rivers and springs. The fourth one affects the sun, moon, and stars. And there's a couple things that we we notice here with these first four trumpets. For one, all of the natural world is affected. Did you see that? Land, water, sky. All of creation is under the judgment of God. And it's not just going to affect creation. It's going to affect the people. We, the people, live off the land. And when those resources have been attacked in that way, it's going to affect us. Second thing we, we notice here. There's some question and some mystery as to exactly what some of these things are. Did did you see that where it says something like a mountain was thrown into the sea? (laughs) Of course, a lot of people have filled in the gaps and they said, oh, that's a volcano or that's a meteorite or that's a nuclear bomb. The reality is we don't fully know what these things are. I'm not sure we're meant to. I think it can be dangerous when we try to press the details when a vision is meant to be seen as a whole. Like the idea that John's giving us, it's not, okay, can you decode and decipher this and figure out this and line it up with... It? No, the idea is that this is total chaos. He wants us to step back and just see the devastation. The third thing we, we notice here is the similarity between the trumpets and the plagues in Exodus. Did you notice that? Hail from the sky, uh, water turning to blood, darkness. We see those exact things taking place when God judges the Egyptians. And I I think that's intentional. Uh, Just as God used the plagues to signal his judgment on Egypt and his deliverance of his people, the trumpets are doing the same thing. They're showing us God's judgment on the world and his coming deliverance of his people. And one thing we know about God's plagues on Egypt is that God protected the Israelites from the plagues. Do you remember that? When the hail fell from the sky in Egypt, Exodus tells us that the only place where hail did not fall was where? It's where the Israelites lived. It's where God's people were. And I think God's going to do the same thing. He's going to protect his people in this time. The fourth and last thing to notice here is that there are limits placed on God's judgment. Did you see that? One-third of this dies and one-third of this is destroyed. So God is is still withholding the fullness of his judgment so that people have a chance to repent. So we see in the first four trumpets that God's judgment is material. Here's the third and and last thing we see about the character of God's judgment. Number three, God's judgment is supernatural. And chapter 8 ends with this eagle Flying And he says, whoa, 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 which he's symbolizing that something different is about to come. And this is where things get a little wild. So look with me at chapter 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. So John, he then spends a few verses (laughs) describing how insane these locusts look. They're not normal locusts. Then skip down with me to verse 13. Let's see the sixth trumpet. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet... And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the six angels who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision. And those who rode them, they were, wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. Did you get all that? Okay. <laughs> Man, it's, it's hard to imagine these last two trumpets. It's, this is bizarre. It's, it's terrifying. Uh, locusts that sting like scorpions. They come, they torture people to the point where they want to die. Sixth trumpet brings this army. It's going to kill a third of mankind. Look, here's what we know. These trumpets are demonic. Did you see right after the fifth trumpet is blown, John sees this star fall from heaven to earth. And that star takes a key and opens the bottomless shaft. So we know he's not your everyday normal falling star. This is an image, we believe, of Satan. It's the same image that Jesus used in the Gospels. You remember he said he saw Satan fall like lightning. So this star, he opens up the bottomless pit. We're going to see more about this pit. But he's unleashing these demonic forces on the earth. And so from this, we learn these two trumpets are supernatural. And again, like we could try and press these details and try to make sense of it all. Like, what is a demon locust? I don't even like regular locusts. Like, what is going on? And what about this global demon army? That sounds crazy. But I think this is meant to be taken for what it is. The point is that during the tribulation, Satan and his demonic forces are going to bring torture and death upon the world. But notice who's protected. Did you see that? Verse 4 tells us that the locusts are only able to harm those who do not have the seal of God. So once again, in the midst of judgment, God is protecting his people. Doesn't mean it won't be scary. Doesn't mean it won't be difficult. These are going to be difficult days. But we will be protected by God from these supernatural judgments. Last thing we need to see in this passage this morning is, is this What is the response from the people after they face these judgments? Does everyone like run to God and come back to church and there's this big great revival? No, sadly that's not the case. Look at the last two verses of chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The people refused to repent. They continue worshiping their their demons and their idols and their sins, and despite all that's going to happen, all the chaos and destruction, this means people still won't get it. The world will be so hardened against God that nothing will turn them back to Him. Look, we we can debate all the details of these events. We can ask all the tough questions about why God does what He does. We can struggle to understand it all. But there is one thing that is abundantly clear. God will judge. He will judge the world. And judgment is coming And look, I'm not much of a a fire and brimstone, doomsday preacher. But there is no way you can read this and not be concerned for the state of your soul and the state of our world. This is not a fairy tale or an exciting movie or a thrilling novel. This is real. This will happen. Judgment will come on the world and it will come soon. So, the question is, are you ready? Are you ready for this day of judgment? I I mentioned earlier if, if God is just and holy and we're sinners, then what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we too deserve this awful judgment. It means it would be totally just and fair for Micah to experience these things because I'm a sinner. Like, I'm a part of this evil world. It's not out there. It's right in here. So what can I do? Well, here's the good news. The good news is I don't have to be afraid of facing God's judgment because someone else has already faced it on my behalf. And that someone is Jesus. That is how I'm standing here today and not in hell where I deserve Jesus came to the earth. He he took on a human body. He lived a perfect life and suffered and died in my place. And on the cross, God put all the judgment for my sin and your sin on Jesus. That's how God's justice was satisfied. The debt was paid by Jesus. The, The punishment that God's holiness requires was given out. But instead of on you and me, it was given out on Jesus. He served our sentence. He took our place so that rather than facing God's judgment, we can face God's love. Rather than experiencing him as a terrible judge, we get to know him as our loving father. This means your only hope, my only hope, for not facing the coming judgment is Jesus. Without him, I don't say this lightly, but you will face this judgment. But with him, you can be saved. This should cause us to do two things this morning. Number one, if, if you're not right with God, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you need to repent and believe today. Don't wait. Don't wait. It's not too late, but it will be one day. So repent and believe now before God's judgment comes. And second thing that should cause us to do, this should cause us to share Jesus with others. Man, I don't want anyone to experience this judgment. Do you? My friends, my family, my neighbors, I don't want them to face this. They don't know this is coming, but we do. And that means we're obligated to tell them about it. The character of God's judgment should motivate us to trust in Jesus more than ever and to talk about Jesus more than ever. Because judgment is coming, it will be just and material and supernatural but those in Christ will be saved but what about you